The time is now 6 o'clock on the dot, and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, February 1st. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, this morning, city leaders gave their annual State of Public Safety address. Governor Evers has announced a new task force to address financial and hiring challenges in the state's healthcare industry. The Republican-held legislature is advancing a bill that would prevent competitive bidding on long-distance transmission projects. And in the second half, transparency talks, the latest information on fishing conditions, and an update from Madison's Flamingos. This is Marcus Slayton and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. A judge's decision upholding a ban on absentee ballot drop boxes in Wisconsin will be appealed according to a law firm representing Wisconsin Democrats. The Elias Law Group filed notice this week that it would appeal Dane County Judge Ann Peacock's dismissal of their lawsuit seeking to overturn the ban, the Associated Press reports. Peacock ruled last week that the lawsuit failed to establish that the Dropbox ban was universally unconstitutional. She added that she would leave a decision on the overall legality of Dropboxes to the state Supreme Court. The lawsuit also sought to eliminate a requirement that a witness sign an absentee ballot and that voters should correct any deficiencies in absentee ballots they cast no later than 8 p.m. on Election Day. The Federal Department of Education is investigating whether UW-Madison failed to protect students of Jewish ancestry in response to a complaint from the editor of a conservative news outlet, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The complaint by Zachary Marshall followed a pro-Palestinian rally October 10th on the UW campus. Marshall said he has filed 21 Title VI complaints against universities after Jewish students told them they were afraid to speak out. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects people from discrimination based on race, color, or national origin in institutions that receive federal financial assistance. Wisconsin is getting a new type of dental care professional under a law Governor Evers signed into effect this week. Dental therapists are licensed to fill cavities, install temporary crowns, and provide preventative care, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Evers proposed licensing dental therapists as part of the last three budget proposals, but Republicans in the legislature killed the idea repeatedly. The Wisconsin Dental Association had opposed therapist licensing in the past, but it dropped opposition after lawmakers included requirements that therapists graduate from accredited programs and work under a dentist's supervision. Today was the deadline the state Supreme Court set to receive consultants' reports recommending redrawn legislative district maps, the Associated Press reports. The court, which ruled in December that the existing Republican-tilted maps are unconstitutional, ordered new maps that would not favor one political party over another. It appointed a team of consultants to review proposed maps submitted by Governor Tony Evers, other Democrats, Republicans, and academics. The consultants could recommend adopting any one of the proposals, a combination of them, or a map of their own. The court could accept or reject the recommendation. Republicans have said they plan to appeal the court's December ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. The dean of UW-Madison's medical school has announced he plans to resign, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Dr. Robert Golden has led the School of Medicine and Public Health since 2006. 
During that time, the school established the Academy for Rural Medicine to train students to practice in rural areas and added programs for physicians working in cities as well. The medical school's fundraising revenue has increased tenfold, according to the State Journal. Golden will remain at the post until the UW names his successor. A grocer offering international foods is opening a second location in the Madison area, according to the State Journal. Fresh Mart will operate in the former Whole Foods Market on University Avenue. Its existing location is at 531 A Street in Sun Prairie. The store owners Yashar Tyrov and Sanya Tyrova also run the Istanbul Supermarket on Gammon Road, a store that specializes in Turkish and Middle Eastern foods. A series of community meetings on the National Guard's F-35 fighter jets is kicking off tonight at Madison College. The 115th Fighter Wing of the Wisconsin Air National Guard is hosting the sessions tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday. The National Guard says they're aiming to find ways to enhance communication collaboration with the community. Tonight's session kicked off at 6 p.m. at Madison College's Health Education Building on Hoffman Street. Sessions tomorrow and Saturday start at 9 a.m. and will be at the Madison College main Truex building. The sessions come as the Dane County Board is poised to decide whether to renew a joint use agreement between the Dane County Airport and the National Guard. Unlike past years, the agreement contains a new clause that would absolve the Air National Guard of legal responsibility in cleaning up PFAS contamination around the airport. Under the agreement, the airport allows the National Guard space for training. In return, Dane County receives emergency firefighting response from the Guard. If rejected, the county board would need to pony up millions of dollars a year to provide its own emergency services in order for the Dane County Airport to stay open. County staff have urged the Dane County Board to approve the deal, even as a group of some board supervisors have questioned whether the indemnification clause would leave Dane County on the hook to clean up PFAS. The group of supervisors have also sought to amend the contract to remove the indemnification clause and put in writing that the Air National Guard stop the use of PFAS containing foam. County Executive Joe Parisi tells Isthmus newspaper that the board can't amend the contract, they can only vote to accept or reject it. Tonight's meeting starts at 7pm. Those were the headlines, now on to today's top stories. This morning, Madison leaders held their annual State of Public Safety Address. They shared last year's crime data and touted local, local organizations working to foster community and prevent violence. WRT producer Faye Parks was there. Homicides and traffic fatalities are up, according to Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes, who outlined the city's latest statistics during his State of Public Safety Address this morning. But Madison has made headway elsewhere in public safety. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway kicked off this year's address by shouting out the partnerships between public health officials, law enforcement, and community groups. Because it's not just about crime, although we'll talk about that today. It's about safe neighborhoods, it's about healthy families, and it's about people being able to thrive here in the city of Madison, um, all of which helps keep our community safer. Public Health Madison Dane County's Violence Prevention Roadmap prioritizes those goals. Melinda Knuth, Public Health's Violence Prevention Supervisor, highlighted the city's Violence Prevention Roadmap. And Knuth says they've used funds from the American Rescue Plan Act to put the roadmap into practice. 
To date, we have awarded just under $800,000 in funding to local organizations doing the work to support community healing, increase capacity, and elevate leaders. Chief Sean Barnes credited that community work as having assisted law enforcement in their priorities for 2023, reducing homicide, aggravated battery, shots fired incidents, subjects struck by gunfire, robbery, burglary, theft from motor vehicles, and stolen cars. Let's take a look at the data. In 2023, there were 10 homicides in Madison, four more homicides than in 2022. Like last year, Chief Barnes and Mayor Rhodes-Conway reiterated that one homicide is one too many. But Chief Barnes emphasized that the department has solved eight of this year's 10 homicide cases. That is a clearance rate of 80%, which is well above the national average. The number of aggravated battery incidents saw almost no change from 2022 to 2023. Just over a third were domestic-related and half occurred in a private residence. This year saw fewer gun-related crimes or shots fired incidents. The number of people shot decreased by just over a third. Gun-related property damage decreased by nearly one-fifth. And self-inflicted gunshot wounds decreased by almost 40%. Chief Barnes says that reducing gun-related crimes has always been one of his top priorities. Now, this is a category that I believe is directly related to a community member's fear of crime. No one wants to live around or listen to the sound of gunfire. The number of robberies decreased by more than 4% last year. Over the last five years, robberies have decreased by half. Chief Barnes says that 2023's numbers are the lowest in 11 years. Burglaries, meanwhile, were reduced by 11%. Chief Barnes touted the public's awareness, describing several incidents where enforcement was able to make an arrest because a citizen noticed suspicious activity and called for help. Theft from motor vehicles went down by just under one-fourth. Again, the lowest value in 11 years. As a reminder, please remove all valuables from your vehicles, lock your vehicles, and as I always say, vehicles are not gun safes. Take your guns inside and do not leave them in your car. And car theft was reduced by nearly one-fifth. This week, Madison saw two armed carjackings, and today, Chief Barnes fielded numerous questions about the case. He confirmed that law enforcement has identified a single suspect in connection with both incidents. We think that there may have been um, some targeting, specific targeting of these folks. And once we um, clear it, we'll definitely update you on that. But um, at this point, uh, we don't believe that there's an overall danger uh, to the community. The Madison Police Department also focused on traffic safety in 2023, which saw 16 traffic fatalities. That's two more than the year before. Barnes says they're working to restructure enforcement on the roads. We are focusing again on those hazardous moving violations in an attempt to reduce racial disparities, which quite frankly show up uh, in traffic stops involving non-hazardous violations. But we are issuing warnings in those regards. He also highlighted the department's traffic safety team, which in part is tasked with enforcing school safety zones and noting areas that would benefit from more signage. Chief Barnes closed by stating the department's focal goals for 2024, all of the same crimes they sought to reduce in 2023. And Mayor Rhodes-Conway encouraged Madisonians to get involved. Everyone can help promote safety in our community. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. 
The healthcare industry continues to grapple with financial pressure and the need to bolster its workforce. Wisconsin's governor brought the issue to the surface this week with a newly announced task force. Rural voices hope it leads to fewer barriers in attracting talent. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has the story. This week, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers announced a new task force to address hiring issues within health care. Those speaking up for rural health access see opportunities. The panel is tasked with finding a range of solutions to consider by the time budget talks ramp up for the two-year spending plan starting in 2025. Evers' office says Wisconsin faces a potential deficit of 20,000 nurses by 2040, one among many concerning examples. John Ike, who leads the Wisconsin Office of Rural Health, says while there's a need in smaller communities, lower patient volumes make it hard for health systems to offer attractive salaries. It is harder to make the math work. There's just not enough in the funding pools to pay for this to go away. He adds Wisconsin is competing with neighboring states for these workers, but Ike suggests regulations surrounding provider certification can make it harder for professionals from elsewhere in the country to transition to Wisconsin. Ike hopes that's part of the discussion and that there's a bipartisan approach to solving the problem. However, the Republican-led legislature has often clashed with Evers, a Democrat, on policy ideas. Rural advocates often note that fewer providers result in local patients having to travel a greater distance for appointments. Ike says it also can affect the quality of care they receive. Maybe the staffing ratios are worse for patients. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that patients are not served as well. As for the task force, it will be led by Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez, who is a registered nurse. Several state agencies, local governments, and patient advocacy groups also are expected to provide input. This is Mike Bowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. State Republicans have reintroduced a proposal that died in committee last session, dubbed the Right of First Refusal Bill. If passed, the bill will prevent competitive bidding on long-distance transmission projects in favor of in-state utility companies. Tom Content is the executive director of the Citizens Utility Board of Wisconsin, a nonprofit consumer interest group. Earlier today, he gave WORT news producer Faye Parks the rundown on the bill. Thank you for joining me, Tom. Oh, good to be with you. So in very basic terms, can you explain what the right of first refusal bill would do? So around the country, there's billions of dollars of new power line projects that are slated to be built, tens of billions actually, even in the, just in the upper Midwest, and a few billion here in Wisconsin. Um, and what this bill would do would give an automatic path to in-state utilities to build those lines. The challenge with that is around the country and in the Midwest, we've, we have competitive bidding going on so that low bidders, uh, utilities around the country are actually bidding to build these projects. And those competitive bids are saving customers money. And that would happen if this bill doesn't pass. But if it does pass, we would be faced with higher costs as the utilities here in Wisconsin wouldn't have to actually submit any competitive bids at all to build those lines. So to clarify, this applies only to long-distance transmission projects? Correct. There's a series of long-distance transmission projects in the works and in the, in, in the planning stages, including about $10.5 billion of projects just in the upper Midwest. In Wisconsin, there's about $2 billion of projects kind of in, in the w- western Wisconsin, kind of hooking up different parts of western Wisconsin with Minnesota that would be built in the, in the coming years. That's what's at stake here. 
Wisconsinites would be paying a share of all the projects that are built in the Midwest. So we are looking at a big, a big expenditure on, on people's bills in the future. And that's why we think there shouldn't be a rush to remove a tool for cost savings. And competitive bidding is clearly a tool for cost savings. Competitively bid projects have already been shown to save uh, customers' money in projects around the country. So you touched on some of the citizen utility board's concerns about this legislation. Can you dig into that a little bit more? What we're seeing is we've seen a lot of cost pressures hitting customers at the same time in recent years and in the years ahead as part of this energy transition. Our utilities are building a lot of new new solar plants and uh, battery plants and even natural gas plants. And then ATC, ATC, American Transmission Company, has a queue of billions and billions of dollars of new projects. But the challenge is utilities get a significant double-digit profits when they build these power lines. When you have competitive bidding, one of the areas you're saving, seeing savings is that utilities agree to actually not earn as much as much profit because they want to submit a competitive bid because they want to be the ones to win, win the project. What's significant is that the competitive bidding process is going around the country and even in, in the Midwest. Uh, Dairyland Power Cooperative just won a competitive bid for a very small, it's a small project, it's only millions of dollars instead of billions of dollars, but, but even on that project, there's significant savings for customers that will, will be had because of Dairyland submitting a competitive bid. What are the ramifications from a consumer's perspective? How would the cost fall onto them eventually? A portion of everybody's utility bill, a home electric bill, is transmission. You don't see it as a line item on the bill, because uh, when you get your MG&E bill or your Alliance Energy bill, you don't see it on there necessarily. But roughly at least 10 cents out of every dollar that you're spending for electricity is going to pay for transmission. Um, and But that could, that could go way up in years ahead with all the construction that's planned. And it actually has gone up already over the last 15 or so years. Transmission's share of a typical bill has gone way up. It's actually more than double. At that time, about 15 years ago, transmission was just about four cents on the dollar of a typical bill. And now it's even a bigger share of that, of that bill today, even as our as energy prices and electricity prices have risen. It's a big concern because overall, Wisconsin electricity rates haven't been kept competitive with other states. Our electricity rates here in Wisconsin are second highest in the Midwest and in the top 15 in the country. Quite a few local Wisconsin utility companies have registered in support of this bill, um, and their interests are pretty clear here. They would be able to bid higher on many different projects. But what are some other arguments in favor of this legislation? In favor of I mean, I think that the, the utilities are citing local control um, and the fact that it would be local companies, local companies uh, that it would be build, uh, owning these projects, uh, but, uh, which, which is a fair point. However, you know, we've seen significant cost challenges with the projects that have been built. Uh, the project that was the, a project that linked Wausau with Duluth years ago ran way over, way, way over budget. And we have another example right now from the project from um, the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line that would run from uh, Madison to Iowa uh, isn't even built yet, and it's already well over $100 million over budget. Um, so. There are real cost concerns from a, from a customer point of view. This bill has seen a lot of interest in Madison. It's actually uh, in the legend in the capital. Um, the it's, it's actually already been passed by two of the, the by two committees, so it's pending in the full Senate and the full Assembly. Um, and this is clearly a priority for the utilities because they they see this as 
as uh, something that's important for their bottom line. Um, and that's why 50, there are over 50 utility lobbyists that are actively working on this legislation. Um, Cub has one lobbyist, that's me, um, and trying to, trying to stop this. But luckily, we're part of a big coalition. Um, and the big coalition includes everybody, kind of uh, a, a diverse set of voices. So everybody from Queen, Wisconsin on one end to Americans for Prosperity on the other end are, are working to try to stop this bill. The groups that don't normally agree on, on much are, are aligned on this. Um, and some, um, and I think there are some libertarian voices in the legislature that are concerned, as concerned about big monopoly utilities as they are about big government. So we know that similar legislation has been before the legislature before um, and did not make it out of committee. Uh, so do you think this time around it's likely to pass? Does it have bipartisan support? It has an element of support, but I we hope it doesn't pass because it, we think it's the wrong it's the wrong step for Wisconsin. It's not moving Wisconsin forward. Um, wh- whether it can pass is something we're concerned about. It did get out of committee, so that 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 shows that it's it's moved further in the process than it was able to last time last session. Um, but uh, it remains to be seen in the in the last few as the legislature gears up for the last few weeks. Um, we're trying to encourage uh, club members and and customers to call their state senators and state legislators to to, report, to ask them to vote no on this bill. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I just yeah, I think it's just one of those issues where um, when when you see fifty utility lobbyists all looking for the same thing. Uh, as the consumer watchdog for customers, are, are, that makes us say, hold on to your wallet. Um, and so we're, we're just really hopeful that, um, that citizens can take part in this process by calling their legislators uh, and asking for a no vote on SB 481 and AB 470. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Tom. Sure thing. That was Tom Content executive director of the Citizens Utility Board of Wisconsin. He gave us the rundown on the right of first refusal bill, which would bar out-of-state companies from bidding on long-distance transmission projects in Wisconsin. Tom says that while the proposal would keep utility projects local, the lack of competitive bidding would likely raise prices for energy consumers. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and Open Records attorney Tom Kamenick discuss some Open Records cases making headlines in Wisconsin. As always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. Hello and welcome again to Transparency Talk. How you doing, Tom? Hey, Dylan. I'm doing good. Happy Thursday. We're doing something fun today. We're going to talk about open records in the news. The first news story we want to talk about has to do with this police shooting in Winnebago County. Now, we have some officers who are involved. They're not being charged with anything. They were cleared by the DA. But we don't know who these officers are. And 
that seems to be kind of a point of contention up there in Winnebago County. So what do you know about this? It's been getting more difficult in recent years to get information about police shootings, which I, I, I think we're moving in the opposite direction with that. I, I feel like for, for a little while, uh, there is a, a enhanced, uh, increased attention being paid to, to issues of police use of force. Uh, but we've seen a, a pushback against that, and part of it's in Wisconsin. It's becoming more difficult to find out information about this and about these uh, these unfortunate incidents when they occur. And one of the reasons is it's an unintended consequence of Marcy's law. If, if listeners are familiar, that was a constitutional amendment. There was a big push for it a few years ago to give enhanced uh, constitutional rights to victims in the state, victims of crimes, which sounds perfectly uh, laudable and, and beneficial on its surface, but it's had a lot of unintended consequences. And some of those are things that government transparency advocates pointed out is that now we're getting all these claims that uh, police officers who were involved in shootings are themselves victims because they're often claiming self-defense and they were being attacked at the time, which may or may not be true in any given case, of course, but they're claiming that status. And so police departments are saying, well, at least for now, we have to treat them as victims and we have to give them their privacy. We have to protect their anonymity and we can't identify them, which is kind of appalling from a, a 10,000 uh, foot view that we are seeing. And it's not to say that these police officers did anything wrong, but they're, you know, they're, they're no. government employees who are on the job. No, not at all. But they are working for the public. They are working for us. And uh, they, I, I think it's atrocious that you have circumstances where even justifiably a government employee kills somebody and the public doesn't get to know who that officer was. I think think that should never be the case. And so just one other interesting element, and, and this is all in Wisconsin Watch, and we'll provide a, a link in the WRT post, but that they're also saying that, you know, this was our narcotics task force and that there that there is a need to protect the confidentiality of undercover officers. Have you run into that at all? I mean, is that an excuse that a, a police officer is undercover? Does that mean they're immune to records laws? No, not in a blanket manner like that. It's, it's a bit of a catch-22 because once they have now said, oh, this officer is an undercover officer, well, now there is an increased risk that they could be identified and their their safety put at risk, or maybe they have to stop being an undercover officer. Whereas if they had never said that, there's zero reason to connect this one name, real name of a police officer being provided to the public to the undercover identity, which I'm sure is not using this police officer's real name. So I, I think they're too quick to to claim that that will be an issue. And, and sometimes just identifying that it's an undercover officer involved is increasing the risks. I think they should avoid that. All right. Well, that's our first example of open records in the news. And I think we will probably see some eventually some court decisions deciding these things. Um, but another one is... Um, you know, the circumstances are, are a little bit lighter. Uh, this was published in the Cap Times, and it's it's basically an attorney who is just trying to do his job uh, handling like uh, insurance claims. And he just can't get a record from the Sheboygan Falls Fire Department. And there's an office, a state office of open government that's supposed to be able someplace you can turn to to help. But it seems like that didn't really end up uh, speeding along the process for this poor attorney just trying to settle this insurance claim or whatever. 
Yeah, this is a really well done story. It, it, it talked about this specific instance of this one attorney who took a really long time to get a response from the attorney general's office and then they used that to talk about the broader problem and look and said that in their analysis, you often have to wait six months or more to get a response from the attorney general and it's often not all that helpful. Just to give a little bit of background, this this office you mentioned, the Office of Open Government, that was created by the the previous Attorney General, Brad Schimmel, prior to Josh Call taking office. Its job is twofold. One of its jobs is to handle record requests that are made to the Department of Justice, and that takes up the vast bulk of its, its resources. But it also can provide guidance and assistance to any member of the public who writes them with a, a question about the open records and open meetings law. But it often now at, at this point takes well over a year. I, when, the, when the cap time said six months, they were looking at an average that uh, stretched back. Uh, I forget exactly how far, but it included time under Brad Schimmel. But uh, in past three or four years, response times have dramatically increased. And the typical wait now is about a year. And what you're typically getting from them is boilerplate language that can be found in the compliance guide, which is freely available off their website. They never take action. They don't file lawsuits. They don't bring prosecutions. And, and you also very rarely even can get a yes or no answer if you ask a question like, is my local police department violating the law by not turning over these records? You, you often do not get an answer one way or the other from the attorney general. So it's kind of a waste of time to to write for advice. You know, it does seem like Republican Brad Schimmel, when he was attorney general, was just doing a better job in this one area than Democratic Attorney General Josh Collin. And people should know that. Yes. Tom didn't really take the bait there, but that's why I was. That's all right. We will. We'll let it be. But OK, the last story we're going to talk about is just about how um, it, it was basically a big investigation by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And it, it came out in December, but it was examining um, statewide firearm deaths in Wisconsin. And these journalists went out and they they asked every county uh, to produce records on gun deaths. And you had to get involved at some point for them to complete the investigation. Is that right? That's right. The, the Journal Sentinel brought me on uh, when their, their reporters and their in-house counsel had, had basically run up against brick walls trying to get this information. And in fact, they originally asked the state, the State Department of, Department of Administration, for these records because the state has a database with all this information in it. The state refused and said, well, these qualify as vital records and vital records are confidential. So Journal Sentinel had to go to each individual county and it was it was amazing how disparate, how different the response was from every county. Some counties provided the information rapidly in an easily usable format with all the information that was that was asked for. Others made things really difficult and dragged their feet and others just ignored it or refused until until I got involved and started sending a lot more strongly worded letters and contacting them. And we finally got 71 of the 72 counties to provide this information uh, in time for the Journal Sentinel's kind of first run at the story. And after that, we decided, let's keep going at the 72nd. And that was Trempolo. And there was an elected coroner in that county who just absolutely refused and said, I don't want to give you this information. It's too much work. I shouldn't have to turn it over. I'm not going to do it. And we wound up talking with the uh, the corporation counsel for the county. That's the the, the official lawyer for, for the county itself is the corporation counsel. And well, once she got involved, uh, 
that tune changed and the Trill Sentinel finally got that information to, to complete their database. Tom Kamenick, thank you so much for giving us some insight about some open records cases that were, were in the news recently. We really appreciate your insight. You're welcome, Dylan. And remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. A warm-up has hit Dane County over the last week, but fear not. There's still some ice that's safe enough for people to fish on. Nate Wiggy Hout and Pat Hansberg take a look at what's happening on Madison's waters. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's a little bit of a warm-up over the last little bit here, but I understand that there is still some ice out there, which is uh, safe enough for people to be walking on, which with this warmer weather, at least it makes it feel nicer to be out on the ice. So, Pat, uh, tell me about the ice conditions here around uh, Dane County. Well, generally, uh, I would say uh, most of your uh, near shore areas uh, and shallow bays are in decent shape yet. Uh, you're going to find some slush on top of the ice, uh, but a lot of your areas around town are, are safe for foot traffic. Uh, that being said, I do always encourage folks to use caution no matter where they fish, but uh, folks are uh, getting out to uh, several areas around town uh, uh, and, and getting fish. And let's get into that where people are getting fish and let's start over on Lake Mendota. What's it looking like over there? Well, uh, Lake Mendota was the last one to freeze as always, uh, the Madison chain. And so I'm definitely recommending folks stay off the deep water and walking too far from shore there. But a lot of your shallow bays still have good ice. Uh, University Bay, Warner Bay are two good examples. Cherokee Marsh up here on the north side. Uh, And they're finding uh, some good pike in those areas on tip-ups. And the panfish action has been picking up, especially up here on Cherokee Marsh. Uh, I haven't heard much out of University Bay yet, but as things warm up here, that's usually... Um, a great spot to to get into some nice skills. So, um, yeah, looking forward to uh, hearing more reports that way. But again, uh, I'd stay off the deeper, deeper water. And how about Lake Monona? What's happening over there? Well, same thing Uh, along the shorelines. uh, Folks are getting some fish, maybe uh, uh, along John Nolan uh, out out from there. But uh, again, not venturing too far out. Uh, Monona Bay has been uh, continued a nice hot, uh, panfish bite down there. Uh, a lot of bluegills and a few crappies coming out of that area. I've also heard about some good fish uh, in the Weechawak Bay and Turbo Bay areas, but uh, again, avoiding some of that deeper water uh, as things have been warming up here. I remember the panfish bite last year over in uh, Monona Bay was pretty slow uh, there. So is it, it's looking better this year? Absolutely. Yeah, folks have been, I've been talking to folks that have been fishing down there and Catching a limit of fish, which you know is 25 panfish in an hour, so uh, the, the fishing's been great, and it's it's just been consistent. And for whatever reason, Manoa in general is just a panfish factory. Yeah, every year I think folks are going to fish that bay out uh, with all the with all the pressure it gets, and every year the fish come back. So uh, it's it, it it's a great resource uh, here locally for sure. And let's move over a little bit in town, a little bit more into Lake Wingra. What's happening there? Uh, they have good ice down in Wingra. I definitely, uh, you know, always use caution down there because Wingra has uh, some springs, especially on the south end of Wingra. But um, it's uh, full of panfish. So if you've got a young person you want to keep busy, it's a great spot to go down there and catch lots of uh, mostly smaller bluegills and some perch in there. And the occasional nice crappie will come through. But tip-up action down there is also good for pike and the occasional largemouth bass. 
And moving over a little bit to Wabisa. What's happening over on Wabisa? Uh, the, uh, so just north of Lake Wabisa is Upper Mud Lake. and That's had a great panfish bite on it the last couple of weeks. Uh, the only thing I actually just heard about this morning was that the path to get back there is getting a little sloppy with these warmer temps. You have to walk about 200 yards down a path through a marsh, so it's getting a little sloppy back there. But the bite up on Upper Mud has been great. Uh, they've also been getting some good bluegills and a few pike in the lake farm area. Other than that, I haven't heard much out of the south end of the lake. And, of course, there again, I would just avoid the deeper water um, while we have this warm up here. Final lake I want to touch on today, Lake Kaganza. Hearing anything coming out of there? Not much off Kaganza. A little bit of bluegill action on the south end of the lake. And, of course, um, near the state park is uh, usually a great spot to find some walleyes. But uh, the perch action out there... Uh, that a lot of guys like uh, looking for perch has been non-existent, at least from what I've heard. All right. And before we get to the bigger rivers around the area, let's talk about the trout bite. I'm hoping to get out to do a little bit of trout fishing this weekend. So what's it what's it looking like out there? Well, that's just it. You know, with the, with the ice, you know, getting softer and softer every day, uh, at least we have trout fishing in, in uh, southern Wisconsin. a great area to do uh, some trout fishing in. And now that the snow is kind of melting down, it's a really great opportunity to get out, get on, a, get on some streams. Uh, and from what I've heard, they've been fishing pretty well. Um, it's mostly winter's mostly uh, using uh, nymphs or woolly buggers. Uh, you can't. This is the catch and release season, so you have to release all fish that you catch, and um, you can't use any live bait. So. Uh, using things that uh, you might run to a deeper pool, slower, uh, is a good option for uh, trout. And, uh, yeah, they're active this time of year, and this warmer weather is a great chance to get out and chase them. I was going to say, this is actually some of my favorite time to go trout fishing because you're not going to freeze out there, uh, but it is still great to get out there and hit the streams and all of that. So now let's shift a little bit and take a look at some of the rivers around here, the Yahara, the Rock, the Wisconsin. What's happening in those rivers? Well, the rivers uh, you know, that were iced over just a week ago after the cold snap we had have opened back up. I've talked to several folks that are taking their boats out of winter storage already and uh, looking to get into some open water fishing because the forecast here, you know, with these warm temps, um, doesn't look great for ice, but uh, folks are already moving into spring fishing, I guess. So, uh, yeah, some good action for walleyes at all the dams up and down the Wisconsin River. Uh, same thing over on uh, the Rock River. Uh, Lake Koshkanon, the ice over there, I hear, is deteriorating very fast. Uh, so, uh, but the Jefferson Dam and Indian Ford Dams are, are great areas, too, where you can find walleye and sauger. And we'll have to leave it at that for today. Pat, just before we go, do you have any final fishing advice for all the people out there? Well, uh, this time of year, definitely use caution. Uh, it's a great time to be out. These warm days make fishing very comfortable, but you're always going to want want to watch um, the ice conditions and, and make sure that you're uh, being cautious because you just never really know what to expect. Yeah, it might feel warm outside, but once you get in that water, it's going to get cold. So please be safe. Uh, test the ice before you get on it, as always. Well, Pat, thank you so much for talking with me again this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thanks so much. Forward Madison held their second off-season town hall meeting last week, recapping charitable fundraising and community outreach efforts in 2023. 
The club also outlined their 2024 preseason schedule. It's the most competitive yet. Forward Focus has a recap. Hello again and welcome to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. This is another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for cultural and Forward Madison theme magazine, New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. When we last left you, Andrew and I sat down with Forward Madison's head coach and technical director, Matt Glazer, to get an update on new signings Devin Boyce and Juan Galindrez, as well as what Glazer and his staff are working on as they finish preparing for the preseason. For this week's segment, Andrew and I attended the recent town hall meeting that was held at the Forward Club in Bree Stevens, where we were able to capture some audio from Forward Madison's Glazer and club's COO, Connor Kaloya as they spoke to fans about a variety of topics, including the upcoming 2024 campaign. Andrew, take it away. FMFC's Kaloya and Glazer laid out three main points of focus this particular town hall. The club's community impact report, the team's 2024 preseason schedule, and the current list of rostered players, including two yet-to-be-announced additions. First, Kaloya touched on the ways Forward Madison was involved in community events and fundraising efforts in 2023. We've had a great thing going for Pride Month. Our team does a nice job on the merchandise front, uh, raised over $5,500 for local causes, uh, you know, outreach LGBTQ+. Um, it's been a great partner. We did an Earth Day promotion, a special line of Earth Day merchandise this year. Uh, We started a new partnership with the Disabled American Veterans of the Wisconsin chapter of the DAV. They're a great partner um, and and raised a couple thousand dollars through a uh, auction uh, raffle. And we're going to be doing more custom stuff with them this year. Um, A significant donation to the flock. And as I I said, they do a lot of great things in the local soccer community. And then uh, a really cool custom uh, baseball jersey with uh, the Labara folks for Hispanic Heritage Month. Speaking of uh, community efforts, and, and, and yes, this is what the club does, but like I said, it, you know, when we're doing these fundraisers, it, it's your dollars supporting these things. It, we're a greater community here working together to impact and do positive things in the community. Uh, speaking of fundraisers, the Polar Plunge coming up in just a few weeks. February 17th, we've got a great relationship with Special Olympics Wisconsin. Please donate. We have a really cool uh, auction items, and uh, everything we're going to raise tonight goes to uh, our Polar Plunge team. And if anybody in the crowd would like to join us, we'd love to have you. Good to raise some money for the community, but we want to engage and be involved in the community as well. In a new program this year with Exact Sciences, uh, Exact Sciences partnered and sponsored all of our community events this past year. Every game they don- donated 20 tickets to a local nonprofit. Uh, and then our players, uh, our players appeared in more than 135 community appearances, whether it be um, at the UW Children's Hospital, uh, you know, reading books, doing the complimentary uh, clinics and camps. But uh, our players are required as part of their contract to do a certain amount of community appearances. And Matt did a great job with the guys getting them out there 135 times, 135 individual different appearances in this past year. 
Um, I mentioned the Unified Series. This has become, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say a lot of good things or thank our friends in Omaha for, for much, but I, I do want to, you know, go back and thank Omaha for, um, you know, bringing up this concept and, and looking for an opponent a couple years back to, to, to play in a Unified Series. And we, luckily, the Special Olympics of Wisconsin stepped right up. Um, and so we've got a great rivalry going uh, with the Omaha folks. Also played uh, a Chicago team as well, and we'll continue uh, kind of that tradition now this, uh, this coming year. So uh, really great program, really good partnership we have with the, the Special Olympics of Wisconsin. Of course, Polar Plunge benefits the Special Olympics of Wisconsin. Next, the pair unveiled the squad's preseason outings, which consist of four closed-door exhibition matchups versus MLS Next Pro and USL Championship sides. A change in level of competition in recent preseasons. All right, let's talk about the preseason. So uh, guys show up on Thursday. We'll do a, a welcome meeting with the players on Thursday. On Friday, they'll do physicals and uh, fitness training. We'll have a welcome dinner with our staff on Friday evening. Um, and then from there, they get right into the preseason. We'll go to Rockford for the first week. The following week, we'll spend a few days in Rockford, but then we'll head up to Minnesota, train in Minnesota, and take on Minnesota United too. The following week, we'll cap the week off uh, on a Friday with a, a, a friendly match against Chicago Fire 2. Week after that, we'll head to Indy 11. And then uh, the capstone of our preseason will be uh, a, a new opponent for us, St. Louis City 2. Preseason is, is an inter, in, integral part of, of, of preparing the guys for, for what we're going to be facing. Uh, so we really put a premise on trying to, to get the best uh, competition that we could get. The idea with playing some of these MLS2 teams is that, as Connor mentioned, uh, the, the, the likelihood is that there'll be a good mix of, of first-team players, um, MLS players, which, which makes a very competitive game for us. We, we've kind of given it a miss on, the, on, on some of the college games that we've done in the past. Not that no, nothing disrespectful there or, or, or anything like that. It's just we, we wanted to go out and find the, the best that we could get. Um, Indy 11's a great opponent that we played last year um, from the championship. And then just and then just having the resources to be able to go on the road, uh, go go stay in their facilities, train in, in good facilities um, for our preseason to help us prepare the, the best that we can. And uh, that's the that's sort of the big picture idea for games. Well, the the inner squad could be a mix of kind of local guys in Chicago at the end of the first week. But I think uh, those are the, sort of our four sort of four key preseason matchups and then and then the, the openers on the on the 16th so that's all the time we have this week to recap the january 2024 forward madison town hall we'll be back to share a roster update and more news in two weeks time back to you grant that will do it for this week we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks as Andrew and I continue to keep you up to date on all the news, updates, and stories coming out of Bree Stevens Field as preparations continue for the 2024 campaign and Ford Madison's pursuit of USL One glory. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. That's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan, Tom and Tom Kamenick, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg, the Ford Focus crew, and Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pippen is the news director here at WORT. 
Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.